Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. This week, we journey to Australia for an upbeat take on the state of the museum world. Here in the U.S., there remains a wait-and-see attitude about the health of major museums, and the cashing in of major works and permanent collections, even as endowments have surged in valuation over the course of the pandemic, has struck a sour note for many. But down under, it's a different story. I think the cultural sector in a post-COVID world is going to be one of the greatest opportunities that our sector's ever had in terms of uniting diverse communities, in terms of what we offer for free through our collection displays as well. And, you know, that these temporary exhibitions are the launch pad to get people into those permanent spaces and have them own them long term. I just feel that we never need to scale back. We just need to broaden our scope to make sure everything's possible. That's Tony Elwood, director of the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. Founded in 1861, the National Gallery of Victoria is the oldest museum in Australia, with a collection of over 75,000 objects. As a reminder, the oldest major U.S. art museums, the Metropolitan and Boston MFA, weren't founded until 1870, nine years later. While the collection is encyclopedic, NGV has a special focus on serving as an advocate for Australian artists and designers. Tony was Director, Bendingo Art Gallery, Deputy Director, International Art, NGV, and Director of the Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art prior to returning to the NGV as Director in August 2012. Under his stewardship, the National Gallery of Victoria has become the most visited gallery in Australia. The NGV holds one of the foremost collections of Indigenous Australian art and design in the world and will continue to amplify Australian and global First Nation voices. Under his leadership, the NGV has had renewed focus on celebrating contemporary art and design. In November 2020, NGV announced its biggest project to date, a new building dedicated to contemporary art and design, NGV Contemporary. Once complete, it will be comparable to Tate Modern in size and will be the largest museum of its kind in Australia. The project is the crown jewel of a US $1 billion effort to upgrade Melbourne's cultural district. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So pleased, and especially because we're in two countries that have much in common superficially. But if I might, I want to acquaint our American listeners with the ubiquitous and venerable Australian commitment to honoring Indigenous peoples. Because while the U.S. is confronting a lasting legacy of racial injustice, there are lessons that we can learn from Australia. Hoping you could give us a primer on how this attitude became the norm in a colonized landmass, superficially like ours, and your own experience with cultural advocacy? Well, it, it's interesting. When I, when I think about our, our galleries, and we, we refer to our, our major galleries as, as state-based galleries, and then we have uh, Canberra, the National Gallery, which was our youngest of all the galleries. That was uh, really only opened in the 80s. But the collection of Indigenous art as a serious commitment in, across our art galleries really only started in the mid-80s. Mid Melbourne was probably one of the first and has become the most comprehensive in that area. But it became uh, very much a, an obligation and one that was more and more welcomed over time to the point now where they're all Indigenous-led as staff across the country. And as a result of that, you know, a much deeper understanding of protocols, respect, responsibilities as a cultural sector and even as a broader community to make sure that whenever we're in public gatherings, we now will say that we're on the land of our Indigenous people. We'll name the country specific to the location we're at. We'll acknowledge if there's anyone Indigenous in the room that we pay our respect. We also pay respect to elders and to emerging leaders coming through. And that's something now that you'll find it almost 
every major public event across the country probably only become a commonplace in the last 10 to 5 years uh, across a broader spectrum. Mm -hmm. Culturally, it's been much more sort of embraced in the longer term. I have to say New Zealand would actually do it even better than Australia, to be honest. It's far more of a bicultural model that they uh, practice Mm -hmm. there. But no, Australia has certainly started to take a much greater responsibility, not only just in terms of just the the optics of this at at, at events, but also just in terms of how we collect, how we conserve, how we actually uh, look at Indigenous rights, uh, the management of land, the returning of land to to rural and remote communities as well. It's a very politicised topic and it's one that's very dear to my heart. I I live with an Indigenous person Mm -hmm. I have for a long time. I also started in the field myself in, um, in the early 90s up in the Kimberley, a very remote part of Australia. But, you know, to, to work in the Australian cultural sector today, you have to have an understanding and a respect for what it means to be working with a First Nations population such as what we refer to as two communities, really. There's Aboriginal Australians and then there's the Torres Strait Islander, uh, the other Indigenous community. And having lived in Canada for three years as director of the Art Gallery of Ontario, I had some sense of how the Commonwealth would address this issue as opposed to those south of the border here in the States. Which makes me ask, are Australians baffled by how inept we are in the States in grappling with our past? You know, I don't think it's in our psyche to be sort of pointing any fingers or judging another community because we by no means have a clear clear or perfect record ourselves in terms of the management of our responsibilities or our support and respect for Indigenous cultures. But, but I would say on a personal level, the visibility of your First Nations people as a community is, does seem to be quite low if I look at what's happening in, say, Canada, for example, and certainly in the cultural space, there isn't that same responsibility that I feel that we have here. So that is that yeah. is apparent, yeah. Let me ask you something about the National Gallery of Victoria's name. We know the locution National Gallery is part of it, and it might puzzle those who know of, as you mentioned, the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. So NGV's name, if I've got this right, dates back to the 19th century when Australia's colonies were self-governing political entities, and then they had to federate. And while your sister institutions like the Art Gallery of New South Wales changed their names in recognition of federal authority, you've hung on to it. What does that say about Melbourne's pride in its heritage? Yeah, it says a lot, I think. And uh, the few failed attempts to try and change that have not gone down very well, I have to say, in, in our history. <laughs> uh, Melbourne was the capital of, of Australia at that time, initially. Melbourne, Melbourne was also the richest city in the world the 19th century, at one point in the 19th century, thanks to the gold rush. And uh, and therefore, its cultural planning was, was very early on. In the 1850s and 1860s, we opened in 1861, we had a a major commitment to a very grand library, museum and gallery precinct. And that's something that the city's always been defined by. It's always been seen as the sort of the cultural leader within our region and it still would be today. When we became a, a, a separate sort of state like everyone else, there was still that sense that Melbourne had led and, and had sort of been collecting for several decades before Sydney and, and, and other states even started to form a gallery. So it was sort of like, well, we're not letting go of this this mantle and, and our national responsibility. We've always seen it as a national collection too. We don't just focus on our local region. We've always collected across the country. And it's, and it's also the only encyclopedic collection in the region. So that history has been hung on to and, and respected and endorsed, I suppose, by the rest of the country, even though it is a bit of an oddity. Melbourne has that kind of um, quirky, historic depth to it. And 
that's the way it is. Can- Canberra did form in the 80s and was initially the um, Australian National Gallery, then it changed to the National Gallery of Australia, so that brought about a little more confusion over time. But uh, you know, they're very different institutions with very different backgrounds. One of the issues today with encyclopedic museums is their focus on contemporary art becoming almost, in this country, to the exclusion of the rest of their mission in some cases. How do you feel about that balance of the need to be current and the need to be paying attention to both heritage of Australia and heritage of around the world? It's a very good question, and it's interesting. I think when you do inherit an institution with an encyclopedic, well, a purported to be encyclopedic sort of uh, heritage, it tends to be governed and attract a certain type of management style that tends to skew towards more the past at the exclusion of contemporary culture. I would say that was certainly the case here. Therefore, while we were doing a lot of contemporary projects, we were never fully investing in major contemporary experiences. And as you know, the leading institution in our region, it meant that no one was really getting the, the, the proper fully invested major scale shows that were looking at late modern and contemporary practice. And so we changed that model and we said, you know, well, our winter series have, have always had these authoritative, unique, curated shows from all around the world, from all the major institutions you can imagine, but all based on pre-1900. We maintain that program vigorously and still to this day, they're very, very good experiences, very well supported. But we put the same investment and we're talking 10, $12 million into a summer equivalent on contemporary practice. And interestingly, the, the, the attendance for the contemporary now actually tends to generally uh, exceed that of the historic. We, we do see the shift. The problem in this country was everyone was so risk adverse because the cost of freight is so high to get to Australia. And when you have start adding on couriers for high value works and so on, no one had really tested whether the market was going to be there. And so we just had to bite the bullet and say, well, someone has to at some point, we need to be the ones who do this. That's probably like seven or eight years ago now. And since that time, it's very clear and very firm that uh, the market is heading towards that direction. And in fact, that was really the incentive for us to now start to um, develop our third site, which is purely about 21st art experiences. Ten years ago, that would have been unthinkable. We've seen in the past an emergence of understanding. Long before you got there, the retrospective of Andres Serrano was cancelled as a kind of reaction to public concern and difficulty understanding and absorbing more cutting-edge material. When I was in Canada, we had a Warhol show that had a work of simulated fellatio by Andy as a video, and a member of the public complained, and I was told, as an American, I was sort of naive, the head of government affairs said, you know, there is no First Amendment in Canada, Max, so we don't have the right to perform this if the public objects. So you're saying your audience has matured and now embraces contemporary art with few reservations. I would say as somebody who's who's grown up in this region that our our, our audience was always ready for that. It just had never uh, had anyone really commit in a really serious way to it. This is is a great contemporary art and design hub in the Asia Pacific. Melbourne always has been. People are drawn to to this Mm -hmm. place for for studios and, and because of the the incredibly active scene of, of artist-run spaces and so on. Serrano was a was a weird moment. It was, it was there was a lot going on behind the scenes. At the same time that Serrano opened, we had a major Rembrandt exhibition. So the risk of indemnified art in the building at the time was extremely high. A young student came in who came from a conservative background, who didn't like his take on Catholicism, particularly it was relation to Piss Christ came in and managed at that, at that time to have a hammer or something and, and smash the work. Uh, the way that security works 
in this day and age, you wouldn't get a hammer into the building for starters. So I can assure you that that was very much a product of mm-hmm. its time. But that got amplified into a very kind of nasty international incident, and understandably so for the artist. Uh, but it was closed down immediately because it was also there was also that perceived risk of having Rembrandt in the building at the same time. So it was a combination of unfortunate situations and programming timing, and it then gave this sort of I think skewed version of of how Melbourne is perceived as in terms of contemporary practice, and and it was kind of used in a way for many years as an ex, as an example of why we shouldn't commit, but it clearly wasn't the case. It was a it was a one off example, and it was it was an extreme action by one particular community. I mentioned your storied background and a bit about the history of the gallery. I was hoping, though, you could talk a little bit about physical plant and what you inherited with Federation Square and with your existing main building. How would you describe your extended campus to the listeners? We moved into a a purpose-built gallery in 1968, designed by an architect called Sir Roy Grau. It's a huge monolith, bluestone edifice with a wall of water. You can't see the entrances, and it has surrounded fully by a moat. So it goes against every possible perceived design of how you do a welcoming building for a museum. But the community loves it because of its austerity. It very much goes into sort of a Melbourne psyche. So that building has always been our sort of building for old master pictures. We have around 40 galleries works on paper photography, you know, decorative arts holdings are very big here in Melbourne as well. So it, it has all of that. It used to also house contemporary, which was, was very compromised. You know, the classic example of that gets put into the back corner of the third floor. So Federation Square was constructed, which is uh, a new public space that's uh, you know, diagonally opposite the road from where this gallery is. That created a large-scale gallery that for the exclusive use of Australian practice, a little bit like the Tate Modern, Tate Britain kind of split quite controversial mm-hmm. at the time, the idea that, you know, we're ghettoising Australian visual culture. At the same time, Melbourne has very rich holdings from colonial right through to today and a huge commitment within that envelope to Indigenous galleries. So it's become quite well embraced and supported. Now it's 20 years since that, that new gallery has been developed and we still contextualise Australian and international visual art between the two buildings, but primarily they have a, a definition that we do tend to adhere to. But no, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, the only gallery in the country that has this kind of opportunity to really just focus in on either international or Australian. And the idea is that we would then develop that into a third site that would then just would be behind the international building, which will just look at global practice. But in this case, it will actually merge Australian and international altogether. So with this new contemporary wing, this new remarkable commitment, which is so extraordinary in both size and impact, how did you go about planning that? You know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's about a $1.4 billion commitment from our government. This has all come through COVID, but I have to say there's years of planning and lobbying behind the scenes behind that. But it, it, it came down to you know, this commitment to contemporary programming. I mean, I did the triennial too. We've had two iterations of that. And the the first triennial we did, which was just a celebration of contemporary art and design throughout our international building, something like 1.2 million people came to that. It was a free exhibition, but the degree of interest in both design and art was so high that we said there's clearly the opportunity for our community, but also nationally, to have a dedicated building of just 21st century practice but it can't be a polite add-on or a a wing it's got to be its own building in its own right so this is a very substantial unique building that will be designed by an Australian architect Um, the designs won't be announced until the end of the year or early in the new year but it uh, it will be a standalone building just in the celebration of what's been happening in the last 20 30 years of, of, of contemporary art and design so 
is nothing like it in the country. Uh, it'll also have ex, you know, major curated exhibitions, but also a real celebration of the permanent collection and the really active collecting we've done across the sector internationally in the last 10, 10 or so years. Um, so it's, you know, it's a landmark moment, and to be managing three major institutions is unusual, of course, but it's also an opportunity for a city of our size, which is about 5.5 million people, to actually make sure that the three different galleries, while they reflect a certain consistency, they can operate at different hours, their programming can sort of complement each other in downtimes and uptimes, can really help lead cultural tourism, which is a major economy for this city. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that can come out of this. It's the new building won't be ready for about seven years, so there's lots of pre-planning that can go into that. And the precinct itself will be a, a huge meadow garden and a, a really substantial open public space filled with international contemporary sculpture. You mentioned how the thinking in Australia about tourism is different from lots of other nations because you're not really near too many places other than New Zealand. Tell us what you mean by international tourism what is the interest from China? What are you starting to see in general from the Asia-Pacific region as a middle-class tourism factor? It's interesting, you know, because the tourism out of the US and out of particularly Western Europe is still very high. That That is a high percentage of our, our visitor base. Yes. Melbourne has the Grand Prix, the Australian Open. So we have other major sporting events, the, the Melbourne Cup, that bring people in uh, as well as just the cultural tourists themselves who tend to come. Um, you know, we're one of the NGV, National Gallery Victoria, is one of the top 10 cultural sites in the country. And so it does work as an attractor in its own right. Uh, we do notice a growing market, certainly out of Asia, very much so. And we've been actively pursuing that market directly into China, Southeast Asia, and so on. The Pacific, of course, is a much smaller community, but while it's, a, it's an active visitor, it's a, it's a small percentage that comes through uh, the, into the country. But increasingly, Asia is really where our future lies. And, and, and in saying that, we would incorporate India in that. So what we're now referring to is really the Indo-Pacific. You know, the, the virus has certainly affected how our active programming has been working. We've been doing this in a unique setting, actually. We haven't done this under any state government or federal government initiative. We've actually just started to directly target various communities with a particular emphasis on India and China and going directly through mm-hmm. um, you know, advisors in the, in the tourism sector. But the potential is just massive and it's it's still very underutilised in our region to actively pursue a cultural tourist. Where we find it actually has immediate impact actually is when we do our major fashion exhibitions. We've got a big Gabrielle Chanel show, for example, coming from Palais Galliera. Um, we know that when we do fashion that uh, it's easy to convert particularly an Asian market into a cultural tourist visit. So that's sort of part of a strategy long term as well. And what are your collections in the fashion arts, like in the permanent Very collection? big, very big. We started collecting fashion in the 1940s. And a lot of people don't realise that Melbourne's always been a bit of a hub for fashion, fashion design and even private fashion collections. And uh, we have major philanthropy that goes into buying fashion from around the world. Our, our strongest would be French couture, which is probably pretty obvious. But, you know, we do make a point of trying to be far more global these days in how we represent the development of, of fashion and fashion history. We take it very seriously as a collection and uh, there's a big commitment behind it. And what kind of curatorial support does it enjoy? We have a team of fashion curators. We have over, around 35 curators in total. We have three full-time fashion curators and around four textiles conservators. But we also work actively with freelance curators in the fashion area. So we've worked with curators directly out of Europe, Canada, North America in general. Uh, to just help broaden our scope and our, our network in that field. 
but it's very active and it will continue to be so into the three campus model as well. And with Indigenous peoples in their representation, not just in the collection, but also on staff, in the community, in the board, give us a sense of how that works. You know, it's an evolving space for our sector. And as we start to, I think, and, and a very heavily scrutinised part of our industry these days as well, we've certainly been developing yeah. uh, an Indigenous, exclusively Indigenous staff department and starting to look at a number of Indigenous advisory groups that will come in and guide us on protocols, uh, look at our forward programming, talk about our interpretation and collection displays, things of that nature. Um, but also in a governance model where possible, we try to include an Indigenous voice. So, for example, we have an international jury currently looking at our third site. And we make sure that we've got a, an Indigenous elder as a part of that mix. And these are not just token politically correct um, opportunities. These are people that genuinely have a voice, have a say, are treated very much as an equal in their own right as as of course they should be. But for anyone who's a little cynical about that as an approach, I can assure you it is a very sincere commitment to making yeah. sure that diverse voices are heard. You know, our American listeners are staggered, I'm sure, by the commitment that the government is making in support of your new expansion. Could you walk us through a bit the governance of the gallery and your reporting relationship to the government of Victoria? The NGV is considered a public sector. So it's not public service, so it's not directly controlled by our state government. We would receive around 44 to $45 million in operational support. So more like the British model of how you run an art gallery. Many American colleagues are quite shocked at how we get all of our <laughs> operational costs covered, which is great. Yeah. However, we none of that goes towards acquisitions. So we would generate uh, that ourselves, and that's 10, 20, 30 million per annum, depending. And then we've gone from a $60 million business to a $100 million business in about the last five or so years. A lot of that is earned revenue, corporate sponsorship and philanthropy, which has been really growing here in Melbourne. Uh, and so therefore, we're public sector. I'm accountable to a board of trustees who are appointed by our Minister for the Arts, who then reports directly to the Premier of our state. So effectively, executive staff in our institution are employed by the board, and the rest of the staff would be employed by the government. How do you connect with your peers around the nation? Do you guys talk together we do. or have we do. meetings? It's a very collegial group. We we only really have six or so major institutions in the whole country. So it's a very small network. Um, but we meet where possible. We meet in person twice a year. But we, we speak regularly. We, we, we support each other's major shows where possible. We go to each other's events where we can. Our, our colleagues certainly share a lot of information. Uh, it, it's a good, it's a, it's a very harmonious sector overall, very ambitious uh, it can be competitive, but in a healthy way. So, no, it's 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 a good space. Well, also you're spread out enough so that a single exhibition could travel without difficulty to Perth and Melbourne and Sydney without crossing well, over the. Not so much. Audience. I mean, that to be honest, that was a bit of an old. That was an older model, and there was a perception mm -hmm. that uh, in the northern hemisphere, if I'm going to lend all these works to the other side of the world, then I want to see them in three other cities. And so we shortened our mm -hmm. seasons and sent them all around the country. The reality is we started to eat into our own audiences and for the investment to bring mm -hmm. them out, our, our margins were really challenged. It was a tough model to do. We've actually really and probably really led this, but from a business point of view, actually having a longer season and only being in one mm -hmm. city actually makes it truly a national event and the whole national media will get behind that as well. And so you actually get everyone yeah. pouring into your city to see that show and therefore, you know, you can you can receive a, hopefully a, a balance at the end of the day or, or a minor profit if you're right. lucky. 
Well, that's good to know. I think that for lenders, certainly from the United States, there's still a degree of innocence about what it means to work with Australia, apart from the very biggest institutions. Are you looking to build bridges with mid-sized museums stateside to a greater Oh, extent? yes. And we're quite shameless in terms of borrowing, you know, requesting loans from around <laughs> the world. So where they need a little bit of um, education on how we work as a sector, we'll certainly go there and we'll certainly visit them if we can as well. Um, we have a lot of support from American institutions, though. When we do our curated exhibitions and we Sarah is an example coming up. You know, while we have 80 or so works coming out of France, we probably have another 40 or 50 coming out of the US. We have we have great uh, support and, and long histories with um, both, both medium and large American institutions. And they recognise that when you are as, as far away as we are, we have to be extremely good at, you know, freight handling and conservation conditions and so I think when people see get an insight into how we operate, they, they feel relaxed. And, and they also see the calibre yeah. of lenders that work with us and can see that it's a highly professional model in this part of the world. I mean, you sound very bullish on shows. I have to say a lot of U.S. directors are saying, gosh, we are really are having difficulty justifying courier expense, registration, insurance, all the costs attendant to big shows and are looking at scaling back the number and the frequency of big shows. Do you feel things are a bit different down under? I don't think I could speak on behalf of the sector there. I'd say that's very much a, an institutional perspective, that we, uh, we maintain an ambition no matter what. Um, you know, far as we can see, our audience still wants regular major exhibition experiences and we're there to provide them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to find the means to do that. Um, you know, I also think it's easy, particularly at this moment, I don't mean this to come across the wrong way, but it's easy to be a little bit defeatist right now. The reality is philanthropy hasn't dried up. People will still back great ideas. Uh, you know, both the corporate and private sector are saying to us, please, this is what we need more than ever. So we mm-hmm. are saying to our employers, we aren't looking at scoping back at all. We're just going to find creative ways to do what we do. And, you know, it might be that installations have to be slightly modified. We have to reuse walls, things that the public won't necessarily notice. We're going to have to, you know, scale back on a, a few things here and there, but nothing that would actually make people feel like they're having comp- a compromised experience. I think the cultural sector in a post-COVID world is going to be one of the greatest opportunities that our sector's ever had in terms of uniting diverse communities, in terms of what we offer for free through our collection displays as well. And, you know, that these temporary exhibitions are the launch pad to get people into those permanent spaces and have them own them long term. I just feel that we never need to scale back. We just need to broaden our scope to make sure everything's possible. Well, and you come to this with so much energy. Your background included service as a barman, and I briefly had a Texas bartending license so I could serve drinks to the staff at the Dallas Museum of Art, or that's what our general counsel told me I had to do. So your background and experiences that led you to museum administration wasn't really a straight line. Can you give us a little flavor of that? Look, I I trained as an artist. I'm one of those uh, that, that came in through... The sort of the, the, the side door, effectively, I, I, I knew I was passionate about art. I just didn't know where to take it. And then uh, I worked as a barman in order to be, allow myself to travel for a year when I was quite young, my early 20s. And it did enable me to go right across North America and Europe. And the only thing I cared about when I came back was museums, art galleries. And that solidified everything for me. And then I went on to, to formally study museum management and off I went. I starting in the outback and then with an Aboriginal community and then working in the gallery sector here down south. But yes, and then bartending, of course, is a very common way of being able to get an arts degree. But it's also an amazing way to actually broaden your knowledge at a young age of what a diverse community really is. And I saw everything in that kind of role, and I, and I was very grateful for that. It sort of 
made me much more aware that when we're talking about a broad community, it really is very broad and much broader than the very sort of sheltered background that I came from. How difficult are you finding it to entice younger Australians to want to work in museums? That's a sector that isn't traditionally sought after by a large number. How do you go about recruiting talented people to join the It's interesting you say that because I would say here at the moment, it's never been more desirable. You know, even the, the, the term curating and, and, and sort of the way that our, our language has become a part of the everyday common language. You know, a florist now curates, a, a window display is a curated display. Uh, everyone loves art books. Everyone, you know, when, you, when you've just done a, we did a Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat show, every street artist in Melbourne all of a sudden wanted to paint their portraits all through the city. And I think galleries, and I think a lot to do with the contemporary agenda, I find that this has never been a more attractive space. I think design has a lot to do with that too. We consciously created a department of design and architecture seven or so years ago. And design has a very kind of easy synergy across with the younger market. They understand the ideas of working with everyday materials out of clay and out of fabric and so on to create beautiful objects that speak to their time. So. No, I'm finding that um, we put in a, a job advertisement. In fact, we were talking about it the other day. You know, you might have had 20 people apply for a role these days. It's 100. I feel very confident and very buoyant about a strong young voice coming through our sector. You may be getting some American kids who want to work after this broadcast. Okay. So I, <laughs> you make it all sound so appealing, Tony. Listen, I appreciate your making time and thank you for telling us a bit about what you're up to. It was really wonderful to hear your voice. Thank, thank you. you. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been speaking today with Tony Elwood, Director of the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.